As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Formula One only raced in Korea four times, but its first visit there in 2010 played a huge role in that year's dramatic championship fight. The rain-delayed race on a circuit that was barely ready in time ended up doing colossal damage to Mark Webber's best shot at a world championship, while a disastrous day for Red Bull was completed when Sebastian Vettel's own title hopes appeared to go up in smoke with his Renault engine late on as darkness fell over the circuit. As you've probably worked out by now, it's time for our regular detour into F1's V8 era. And to help us look back on this dramatic first Korean Grand Prix, I'm joined by Ed Straw and the first person to drive an F1 car on the track before it was even finished, Karun Chandok. Karun, welcome along. I hope I haven't just taken away your answer to the opening question, but when you think of the first Korean Grand Prix, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Awful hotels. <laughs> where we were having to pay for the rooms um, by the hour. So that underlines the sort of hotels we were in. Oh, dear. Yeah, we had we had a few people asking about that in the audience memories, but we won't get into that in too much detail. Uh, Ed, you attended all four Korean GPs, I believe. What stands out for you about the first one? Yeah, it was, a, it was a great race, actually, once you got the hang of it. The first year was a little bit of a culture shock for uh, various reasons, one of which Karun <laughs> alluded to. And Mokpo, it's in the south of uh, South Korea. It's a uh, shipbuilding city, so it's kind of a, a side of uh, South Korea, a place that none of us would ever have any reason to go other than for this race. So, um, yeah, I did quite uh, quite enjoy it. But the, the thing that really stands out in my mind is obviously when the chequered flag falls in the race, standard procedure, you'll normally be in the media centre at that point, is to charge down to the paddock, see you can find find out what's going on. I just remember coming out of the media centre, which was one of these dreadful new-style media centres where you have no windows and you're reliant on screens, so you were kind of sealed. And we knew it was getting late, but I just remember walking outside and thinking, it's dark, which <laughs> was really, really struck me. I was expecting it to be gloomy, but it, it, I mean, it wasn't quite middle of the night yet, but it was surprisingly so. It wasn't just a little bit gloomy. It was really, really dark. I don't think there's probably ever been an F1 race that's that's got into such gloomy conditions. But yeah, that, that really sticks in my mind, just that moment of what was going on here. How do they deal with that? 
Yeah, it was a night race without the floodlights. Um, let's hear some of the memories chosen by our audience. We, Like as I said, we won't get into those of you who asked about the hotels. Thank you to everyone who replied to this in the Bring Back V10's Twitter community. So if you want to join us and now more than a thousand other people in that group, uh, check out the link in the episode description and come on over. It's a, it's a good place to share memories from this era. Lewis Sudderby says, the end of Vettel's title challenge, or so we thought. And linked to that, James Stock recalls Alonso's wicked laugh at the chequered flag over the radio. Uh, we had a few of these. Joey Jojo calls it the Alonso cackle and says, if he'd gone on to win the title that year, that radio message would have gone down in history. Double Waved Yellow says, uh, just as Ed did, uh, it was pretty much a night race uh, with no lights. And Andrew Sillett says, the nighttime podium ceremony. Dan W says Mark Webber's crash and his reaction after it. His body language told the world he'd just thrown away his best chance at a title. BJ4 Design says Webber's championship charge ending in the barrier and covered in mud. And Terry Tomlinson recalls Webber collecting Nico Rosberg at the end of that accident. We had a few mentions of Jensen Button's tough day in conditions that usually suited him. So thanks to James McKenzie, Neaton Calaire, Richard Royal and Sean for those. Mark Hewitt says racing around a barren, desolate wasteland. And Gavin Richardson calls it a farcical Grand Prix venue which wasn't ready on time. And Kevin O'Brien says the Grand Prix in the middle of nowhere. And in the interest of balance, Joe says, I always think what an underrated track this was, a proper modern circuit. And IndyCart says, I really liked that track. Shame it's not still on the calendar. We're marching on through this series now, so make sure you get your questions in for the end of the series where you can ask us anything about the V10 era from 1989 to 2005. Submit your questions using the hashtag BringBackV10s or email them to BringBackV10s at the-race.com. And if you want early access to new episodes plus bonus content from BringBackV10s and the race in general, then check out the Race Members Club. To find out more and to sign up, head to the-race.com forward slash members club. There's only one place to start in uh, late in the 2010 season, and that's with the dramatic championship fight. 31 points cover the top five in the standings with three races to go, with Mark Webber leading the way, 14 points ahead of Red Bull teammate Sebastian Vettel and Ferrari's Fernando Alonso in joint second. The McLaren drivers were the outsiders, with Lewis Hamilton 28 points behind Webber in fourth, and reigning champion Jensen Button was 31 adrift. By way of comparison, after the same number of races in 2022, 148 points covered the top five although most of that gap was between first and second uh, Weber was doing his best not to get bogged down in championship talk as you might expect saying it was ridiculous to start calculating how he could win the championship in his book years later Mark said that he went into the final three races feeling he needed one more win to put himself out of reach Ed looking at how things were playing out heading into Korea was there any reason not to view Weber as the championship favourite at this point? Yeah, it's just common. I think that admission from his book shows that he was very much <laughs> thinking about it, doesn't it? <laughs> and who wouldn't be, particularly in a position to go for a first world championship? Tough thing. But I did have a look back at what I wrote at the time, actually, just to try and jog my memory of exactly where I was with this championship fight at the time. Unfortunately, I wrote a feature about it in Autosport in the Korean Grand Prix preview issue. So what are I was, the chances? So I was able to remind myself of what I thought uh, at that point. And... It very much was that a Red Bull driver was favourite, but it still felt like a toss-up between Vettel and Weber. 
because obviously we knew Vettel had a reasonable amount of support within Red Bull as well and he'd had a really good victory at Suzuka as well so it felt like one of those two and with that came the whole dynamic of well with those two squabbling can Fernando Alonso most realistically Lewis Hamilton and was still I think mathematically Jensen Button was still just in the title fight as well but very unlikely but you wondered whether Alonso could just kind of nip through and I'm sure Alonso thought the same thing so it felt still much like it was a live battle between Vettel and Weber to be decided despite the 14 point gap and yeah Weber was in the best position so I guess he was the favourite but it was not favourite by a, a big margin it was still very much about how it would go how the team would treat them who would make the first mistake which ultimately as we'll get on to later uh, was Weber in that but I, I did have a slight concern about how Weber would deal with the sort of pressure of the title fight particularly after what had gone on through the season it had been a pretty tough year for him as well and obviously he had a few little disadvantages as well you know he's 10 kilos heavier than Vettel so he didn't have the same ballast advantages so yeah it felt very very finely balanced I think and I can understand why Weber felt if I just get that one more win and a couple of solid results I'll be there but there were quite a few there there was there was quite a a difficult avenue to seeing even to getting that one win because Vettel could have won all of them Alonso was still there the McLarens on their day could still be okay so yeah um, maybe joint championship favourite at that point the McLaren drivers as Ed mentioned there they accepted their status as outsiders but Hamilton and Button were pinning their hopes on car upgrades to bring them closer to Red Bull and Ferrari on pace Hamilton said he was feeling more relaxed after a tough few races where he'd made some mistakes or the car had let him down. And Button said every race was being portrayed as the critical one for him to keep his title hopes alive. Button said, Ferrari and Red Bull have had the legs on us, but hopefully now it'll be closer and we have parts here that should make a difference. Karun, I went back and looked at the race by race points and it was only three races earlier that Hamilton had won at Spa and was in the lead of the championship. So how do you think, why did this one slip away from McLaren so quickly? They always kind of felt like they, they weren't quite consistent enough in terms of outright pace. It did feel like across the season, the Red Bull was consistently there. Uh, you know, they had a couple of wobbly weekends, Monza in particular, I think, you know, they just didn't have the power perhaps in the engine. Um, but broadly across the season, you, you felt like the Red Bull was the quickest car. Um, I think Lewis, I mean, Lewis and Jensen both drove great seasons, I think, actually. You know, when you look at, um, they were pretty evenly matched at that stage. Um, you know, Lewis, great win in, in um, Canada, great win in Turkey as well. You know, that, um, that Canadian Grand Prix was extraordinary, wasn't it? The tyres were really struggling on that surface and we had, um, ended up with a, with a McLaren 1-2. I think I seem to remember. Um, it was Fernando up there as well. I mean, it, you know, when you go back and look over the last 50 years, it's very rare that we have three teams in the fight. I remember writing a column about the great F1 seasons, or my favourite F1 seasons. Uh, and this is right up there. Not only because I was in it, but, <laughs> um, but, but actually because you had three teams in the fight. And I think, you know, you have to go back to sort of, you know, 86, maybe, where, where you have that situation. Um, it, it's very rare, isn't it, that you've got genuinely going to the final few rounds, three teams in the championship fight. Um, but, yeah, I, I never quite got the feeling that McLaren were ever ever going to be the favourites. You know, the car just wasn't quick enough, despite the drivers, I thought, doing a, a superb job. 
We've got to take this opportunity to remember Karun's brief contribution to the title fight in Canada because uh, you made Mr. Alonso quite unhappy while being lapped, didn't you? Well, this is true. I did, I did hold him up on the exit of turn seven, which allowed Jensen to sneak past. However, in my defence, he would have still, I think, lost the championship by one point, <laughs> even if he had finished second. So thankfully for me... I didn't cost Fernando Alonso a third world championship. I'm sure Fernando's over it by now. <laughs> he wasn't over it then. I tell you, they came <laughs> marching down because he's obviously we were the Spanish team, and his uh, his Spanish manager came marching down to uh, to our motorhome to have some pretty stern words afterwards. <laughs> I did apologise. I was trying to get out of the way, um, but you know when you're trying to hang on to a car with no downforce on a low downforce track, it's pretty tricky. Yeah, I imagine your your primary focus there is don't put this car in the wall. Uh, talking of Fernando, uh, he was saying Fernando Alonso things ahead of this race. He declared 2010 the best year of his career so far, and he was happy with how he'd integrated at Ferrari since day one. He said, obviously, it would be nice to become a champion this year, but if we cannot do it, I will have great memories of 2010 anyway. I wonder if that's still the case. Uh, Ed, Alonso has always loved making these declarations. He still does it today. Things being his greatest ever performance, his greatest ever free practice lap. You know, he, he can't resist the sound bites. Was this just his way of deflecting from having to actually talk about the championship? A little bit, yeah. He, he was in a strange position. I imagine he was in two minds because he knew Red Bull had the stronger car, even though he'd won two of the last three races. Obviously, he'd won at Monza and had a really good win in Singapore under pressure from uh, Vettel. But he'll also have recognised the opportunity that was presented by the fact that Ferrari was pretty good, the Red Bull drivers were at war. and he, So I imagine he fancied his chances, but he didn't want to kind of position himself as, as favourite because he knew he had to kind of stealth his way, you know, stay in there, make sure he's at worst behind the Red Bull drivers, pick up the pieces when things went wrong. And actually... That's kind of how it should have played out and would have done had uh, Ferrari had a better grasp of the tyre graining characteristics in Abu Dhabi. But uh, that's a discussion for another episode, I suspect. So I think Alonso would have fancied his chances downplaying them a little bit because he knew how he had to do it. He wasn't the front runner. But I imagine going into that weekend, he was thinking, well, I've not necessarily got the best car, but I've really got a chance here and just yeah saying the season's great is just taking a little bit of pressure off isn't it it's like well this has been a triumph whatever happens and even at the time he'd have uh, absolutely loved to have won that championship and he was gutted when he didn't and I imagine the passage of time hasn't made him look on that any more favorably well I'm sure he's comforted by all the championships he's won since 2010 um or not so that just leaves Vettel as the remaining contender. He'd won the last race in Japan, his first win since round nine at Valencia in June. And he was trying to summon the spirit of Kimi Raikkonen's late charge to the 2007 title. Vettel said what happened in 2007 happened for a reason. Kimi had quite a bad chance and he showed it was possible. He did his maximum, he won those races, but it also required the others not to finish high up. It has been looking worse for us this year, but we are in a good position. The expectation was to be in a, a position to fight for the championship, so we have fulfilled our expectations. Karim, those, those Vettel quotes look brilliantly ominous with the knowledge that he did go on to win this title. But at this point, did any driver, Vettel or anyone else, appear to be the one with more momentum than all the others? I think, I think Vettel and Fernando had the momentum in some ways, didn't they? You know, Mark had had a... A good run of the season earlier on with those back-to-back -back wins 
in in Spain and, and Monaco, uh, you know, Turkey, obviously, he was in that fight before the famous clash with Sebastian, and it, but still ended up with third. So, you know, Mark's momentum then carried on. But you'd have to say, from sort of Budapest onwards, you did feel like the 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 momentum was shifting a little bit in that within that team uh, and certainly you know Singapore you had Fernando versus Sebastian on the front row okay Mark got third in the race but in Japan Sebastian was was ahead um, and I think I don't know I, I felt that all three drivers were in the fight I mean I, I have to say personally I was really kind of willing Mark on I, I kind of re- you know wanted him to win this championship I felt like after Silverstone with the whole front wing thing where he was pretty much, you know, re- pretty much declaring to the world that he was a number two driver. You know, that, that famous comment, not bad for a number two driver after his front wing was taken off and put on Sebastian's car. I, I just felt it was a bit unfair and I really wanted him to win the world championship. You know, I think uh, um, I go I rewind back to Turkey as well when they clashed. And I thought he was treated really unfairly that day because, if anything, you watch it back and you'd have to say Sebastian is the one who moved over on Mark. In a, in a way, he kind of similarly did with Charles Leclerc in Interlagos all those years later, I think. you know. So, um, and Mark was obviously, you know, somewhat made to take the blame by, by Helmut Marko on that day. So I, I was a fan of, of Mark in, in the sense that I, I, I would have liked to see him win there. I felt that would have been the just thing to do. But the momentum, I don't know, there was just this underlying feeling that the momentum was kind of shifting a little bit towards Sebastian. And, and Fernando was just there, ready to, to pounce on any given point, any given opportunity to sneak an extra result. It was actually a very weird season in terms of momentum because it did keep swinging. We kept seeing top drivers making mistakes and leaving points on the table. Also, you know, even Alonso would uh, would make errors as well. Um Spari crashed out of didn't he in the in the damp so it, it it was a season where nobody really had momentum but I think there was as I mentioned earlier this general feeling that Red Bull were picking it up and actually career was the point where Vettel just picked up and and ran with it to the end of the season looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 US-based live customer service from Discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Three teams had drivers still in the hunt for the title then, as we've discussed, but the next best team was the one that won both championships in 2009 as Braun and was now Mercedes. Mercedes' first season as a works F1 team since the 1950s hadn't quite gone to plan. Nico Rosberg was 7th in the championship and 98 points behind Weber, and Michael Schumacher was 9th, 68 points behind Rosberg. Rosberg called it a two-faced season in that he was happy he had comfortably beaten the returning Schumacher, but he said in terms of absolute results, he'd been hoping for a lot more. 
Ross Braun told Italian newspaper Gazzetta dello Sport that the 2010 car was too conservative, but he said that was all the team could manage while chasing the 2009 titles as an independent before Mercedes got involved. Braun explained this in good detail in the book Total Competition that he released with Adam Parr. He said, 2010 suffered because in 2009 we didn't have the resources. But he also said, Mercedes bought the team and were convinced they could run it without investing money into it. He said his first budget proposal for 2010 was cut by £29 million and it was hurting. Ed, we'll come to one of the reasons Mercedes thought it could do F1 on the relative cheap next. But when... Mercedes bought Braun at the end of 2009. Do you think they underestimated how much the team was scraping by at that point? Yeah, they definitely did feel that it was a turnkey championship winning operation. That's certainly how it was pitched to the board. I suspect the Mercedes motorsport side, Norbert Haug and that, will have done a little bit more due diligence and will have had a slightly better idea. But obviously, they wanted their own their own proper team, obviously, McLaren was the works team but it it wasn't so much so that was a big part of it and obviously the restructuring and reorganization that was needed in that team was very significant because Braun had just you know they cut people it hadn't been done in a particularly constructive way and that they just had to make changes and muddle through so yeah I think the watching world actually did expect Mercedes to be strong there was a lot of of hype about them because Braun had been so strong but yeah that team was uh, quite brittle internally so that that was a big factor and yeah the point Braun makes about 2010 and the lack of investment in the car etc perfect sense and yeah there was also of course all of the uh, uh, the longer term controversy about the the level of spending which we'll we'll get on to and I think that was a big part of the sell as well to the Mercedes board, that it was actually, you can do this on the cheap. So it's a great proposal. It's like turnkey championship winning operation at a pretty good price. You won't have to invest the money you might have had to in previous years. And then, of course, that started to slowly unravel and the kind of excitement of having Schumacher back turned to uh, frustration as, as he had a pretty difficult season in that first year. So yeah, there was a lot of reality biting for Mercedes. And yeah, it all came down to the unique circumstances of, of what Braun started off as that 2010 was a direct consequence of the circumstance of 2009 because of course why would you throw anything at the 2010 car when you would have just been thinking we have to close out this championship whatever happens I think in some ways they were lucky that the championship fight was so good up at the front and you actually had this you know five driver championship fight going all the way up to Korea because it took away the attention from what was a really pretty disappointing season. I mean, otherwise, they would have been the biggest story. You know, the disappointment of reigning world champion team, Michael Schumacher's return, Silver Arrow car, rah, rah, rah. I mean, I remember pre-season getting to Bahrain, you know, th- that was the biggest story, was Michael's return in the car that had won the world championship the year before. You know, could Michael clean up? Is this going to be... The, the return of the king who just wipes the floor with Fernando and Lewis and all that sort of stuff. Um, and, you know, he he didn't even get a podium that year. And, and Nico, I think, got three podiums from my memory. So, yeah, considering all of the, the expectations and hype, I think they kind of got away with it because there was so much else going on that season um, that people didn't really pay attention to what a disappointing year that was. That's a really good point. I've not considered that before. I, I do remember being at testing in, in pre-season and doing, well, I think we did some sort of round table thing. And, and one of the questions was 
like could Nico Rosberg win a race? But it was kind of framed in a way of obviously Michael's going to win a bunch, but can Rosberg get his first win? Um, I always look at that car though as not the Mercedes W O one. I consider it the Braun BGP 002. Um, you know, there was a family resemblance, but you could also see how underdeveloped it was. They're actually quite lucky to hold on to fourth in the championship because Renault were quite strong that year and Michael Schumacher quite comprehensively outscored Vitaly Petrov. I think that was about 95% of the points difference between the two. So they could easily have been fifth that year. And if there were two Robert Kubitzers in a Renault, then they would have been. That's what Schumacher was there for, outscore Petrov. Um, Braun said in that Gazetta interview in 2010 that he had higher hopes for 2011 because of the cost reductions that were coming into F1, as we've briefly hinted at. And this was in the form of the resource restriction agreement, an F1 phrase, if ever I heard one. This was a soft version of the cost cap we have today. And Braun said in his book that under the agreement, Mercedes were perfectly sized for the new world of Formula One. But it didn't work out like that. Braun added that it soon became clear Ferrari and Red Bull were not paying any attention to the RRA. And when Braun was part of F1's management in 2019, when the current cost cap was announced, he referred to the RRA then, saying, whereas before we had the resource restriction, which was a gentleman's agreement between teams, well, there's not many gentlemen in the paddock, I'm afraid, and that was a failure. But in late 2010, the team bosses were all singing the praises of this agreement, uh, Teams Association, so FOTA President Martin Whitmarsh of McLaren, said the agreement had already achieved a lot and probably helped save a number of teams. Ferrari and Red Bull, who Braun later singled out as not following the agreement, were on message here. Ferrari team boss Stefano Domenicali, who now uh, is calling the shots in F1, let's remember, called it a good agreement to stabilise the level of expenditure in F1 to a reasonable level. And Christian Horner said the RRA was positive because it allowed Red Bull to fight at the front as an independent team. Horner said a few years ago it would have been inconceivable for an energy drink company to be competing with the likes of Ferrari and McLaren and he felt the RRA was creating a more level playing field. But he said the challenge was to find consensus so that it would accommodate big teams like Ferrari and McLaren but also work for the smaller teams. Corinne, I'm fascinated by this. How funny is it to hear Red Bull talking about itself as one of the small independent teams and pointing to McLaren as one of the big monsters? It's hilarious, isn't it? I mean, especially when you when you keep in context how much had been invested. But, you know, this is where sort of this is the game Christian likes to play, isn't it? You know, this whole we're a small energy drinks company. Look at the world of the big automotive manufacturers. And, you know, he he's he's still now, you know, you look at um, the way they played that whole thing in Singapore last year with the cost cap breach and. You know, he just owned the narrative, you know, about how it was about a few little sandwiches and this and the other. And he, <laughs> he tried to, he just turned it around. You know, I think, I do think he's got a future as a political spin doctor. Definitely. Because I think, yeah, I think Christian is very good at, at, at managing the narrative and controlling the narrative and taking attention away um, from from issues that could be detrimental to the team and to him personally and stuff. And, you know, I think he's he's... You know, he basically turned the cost cap row into a story that the rest of the paddock were bullying Red Bull, weren't they? Um, and in a similar situation, you go back to 2009. So fair play to him. I actually think that's his job is to is to deflect and, and in a way that politicians do. Um, but yeah, it is quite comical when you think back to 
Red Bull, you know, pleading poverty as being a, a tiny team. And it's doubly hilarious given that Red Bull was probably the biggest mover in the resource restriction agreements, ultimately failing. Um, on a slight technicality, there were a couple of resource restriction agreements. The second one was was less firm even than the first one. So um, it was quite brittle and it wasn't in the regulations. A bunch of teams did try to push to get it into the regulations uh, a couple of years after this, but that never happened. But yeah, Red Bull were the ones that, that really invested heavily and, and pushed that which was fine because it wasn't in the regulations. It wasn't a particularly binding agreement. And Mercedes had to go to the, the Daimler board and ask for more money to, to invest in order to to catch up and, uh, and do things at a much higher level. So, yeah, I agree with Karine. That, that is ultimately what Christian Horner and Red Bull are there to do. So they, they played it very, very cleverly. Well, we, we talked in at the start of this series about the fact that Horner's been around as an F1 team boss since 2005. I think it's because he's good at things like this. You do have to be a politician as an F1 team boss. But as you guys have mentioned, if this is if this agreement wasn't in the rules, it was always destined to fail. Uh, another topic team bosses were all weighing in on over the career weekend was the length of the F1 calendar. In 2010, there were 19 races on the schedule, but there was talk of Russia becoming the 20th race and lots of debate around if 20 was the maximum number of races F1 should hold. Imagine that. Red Bull boss Christian Horner said uh, with only 52 weeks in a year, there weren't many more spaces for extra races. And he raised concerns about the logistical issues and the human toll it takes on team personnel to keep adding races. Renault boss Eric Boulier said uh, 20 was a comfortable number and going above that would require teams to reorganise the way they worked. McLaren's Martin Whitmarsh raised concerns about going beyond 20 races and how that would stop each race feeling special. And if F1 had too many, then winning an individual race will not have the same significance that a Grand Prix should have. Lastly on this, let's look at what then Ferrari team boss, and as I mentioned now, F1 ringmaster Stefano Domenicali said. He reckoned 20 races was a reasonable number the way we are structured, and he said a couple of issues would need to be agreed if more were added. He also said it was great that F1 was going to new places, but he didn't want to lose too many European races because they were part of what made F1 special. He also warned against F1 moving to too many street circuits, calling for balance. Ed, what do you think of all those points, especially looking on 13 years later and preparing for a 24 race calendar next year? Yeah, 2023 Stefano Domenicali would have quite a good debate with 2010 Stefano Domenicali, <laughs> uh, wouldn't he? I mean, it's a matter of perspective with that, isn't it? Very, very different uh, perspectives, being a team boss versus being the head it's of... It's a bit of whole... a stitch up for us to bring those quotes up. Exactly, right? yeah, the head of the whole shebang. It's slightly different, but it is, it is quite funny. And ultimately, team bosses will generally say the maximum number of races is however the maximum number of races is set out in the Concorde because they've agreed to it. But there is this tension because obviously the race fees are one of the main revenue drivers of Formula One. And it's certainly in F1's interest to push up that revenue. And it's actually in the team's interest as well, because obviously they share a big slice of that revenue between themselves. So there's this great sort of tension there. That, and of course, the people who suffer are the, the rank and file, really, who are travelling economy, clambering around under race cars in the garage, being expected to do however many races a year, 23, 24, because for all the talk of rotation, it does happen to an extent, but it's not necessarily that practical, particularly with the cost cap limiting your employees as well. So you don't necessarily have spares lying around to rotate in and out. But it is interesting that this debate has been going on for a long time and it hasn't really got anywhere. And I actually think the key part of the debate is in the wider sense, not to 
belittle the the stress and the toll on teams. I think that's just a slightly separate issue, and I think that does need to be taken seriously. But looking at F1 as a whole, the way it projects itself into the world, that question of is there too much, does it reduce the specialness if you start making less of an appointment to view 16 Grand Prix, say, on a Sunday afternoon, and instead you've got 24 and you think, well, I can drop a few you perhaps do risk getting people less engaged. But the counter-argument is people consume things in a different way now in terms of uh, of how they do it. It's not necessarily watch the races live. There's social media, there's drugs, survive, all these things. So it's an interesting debate. And I just think it shows F1 has got nowhere near actually resolving and understanding where it wants to be beyond the fact that the teams and F1 would really like more money and more races means more money. Yeah, I'm sure 24 won't uh, won't be the cap. I'm slightly uncomfortable with the fact that the decisions are made by suits who fly in and out of the race uh, business or first class and are only there for a handful of days and probably get to leave during or just after the race. And their decisions, as you said, impact the people who, uh, like you, Ed, as we record this, you're getting on an easy jet flight later. Um, so, yeah, the media as well as the team personnel who are at these races for an, a number of more days than than the cars are on track. Let's move on to driver market next. And amid talk that Nico Hulkenberg was going to lose his Williams seat to the well-funded Pastor Maldonado, Hulkenberg was getting talked up by Williams. Uh, Frank Williams told the BBC that he felt we were witnessing the beginning of something very exceptional with Hulkenberg, and he hoped Nico could win the world championship one day, ideally with Williams. Meanwhile, Patrick Head was complimentary, but in a more Patrick Head kind of way, saying that Hulkenberg had shown enough in his rookie season and before he got to F1 to support the view that he is a justified driver within the justified drivers in F1. Don't get too excited, will you, Patrick? Um... Head wouldn't be pushed on Hulkenberg's future, admitting that it was terrible to hide behind a board, but that the decision wasn't taken yet and it would be debated at board level. Ed, a positive response there from Williams, but how good was Hulkenberg in his rookie season and would he have deserved to keep that seat if Williams didn't need Maldonado's money? Yeah, I do think he'd done more than enough to hold on to the seat. It had been a bit of a slow burn. He'd had a difficult start. That Williams was quite tricky to drive. And one of the things that Rubens Barrichello, who's his teammate, is very good at is hauling a good qualifying lap out of a tricky car. He was very, very uh, effective at that. And it took Nico a little bit of time to get his head around that. Had quite a difficult start to the season. He only had a couple of 10th places in the first half of the year basically and the turning point really was hungry where not only did he uh did he get a good result uh there but also that was just the point where he seemed to have his head around everything and he was starting to show that pace and he had a good run in through the rest of the season so yeah on on performance even though he'd not quite made the instant splash that was expected for someone who'd excelled in a1gp in particular um i think yeah he'd done more than enough but obviously williams did need some cash and actually Pasta Maldonado with a huge amount of PDVSA money was pretty appealing because Pasta, for all his weaknesses, was an extraordinarily talented driver, but also one whose extraordinary talent was extraordinarily unchanneled and unfocused. So, yeah, they were were getting not a a complete no-hoper. They were getting exactly what history showed they got, which was a driver capable of tremendous peaks and a lot of comedy errors and being a bit all over the place. So I don't necessarily blame Williams for doing that, given how much money uh, there was at stake there. But a real shame for Nico Hulkenberg, who of course washed up as a Force India reserve the following year. And we should say Maldonado was coming in as as GP2 champion as well, wasn't he? So as you say, uh, clearly lots of speed there. But let's move on from a rookie to a couple of world champions who weren't even on the grid 
in 2010, but were in the news around this time. The first of those is Kimi Raikkonen. Raikkonen was coming to the end of his first year in the World Rally Championship after being paid off by Ferrari to make room for Fernando Alonso. And despite constant speculation that he might come back to F1, his manager Steve Robertson ruled out an F1 return. Robertson told Finnish TV... We're no longer looking at opportunities in F1. Kimi seems to be focused on rallying at the moment. Never say never, but right now our eye is not on F1. This, of course, was about 13 months before Raikkonen signed a deal to come back to F1 with Lotus for 2012. But Corinne, you were you were in the F1 paddock. You, you, you were active in 2010. You were one of the drivers. How much did you feel Raikkonen was missed by F1 while he was gone, if at all? I don't think anyone really missed him that particular year. I think because it was an exciting season, right? There was a, you know, there was a lot going on. This, as I mentioned, the return of Michael Schumacher, the, the five-way championship fight, you had new teams in the grid, you had, you know, just, just so much going on. And actually new regulations, which we haven't really touched on, have we? You know, the fact that first season without refueling, I think, um, you know, in, in since 1994, uh, that changed the way people went racing. Um, you know, there was, there was just a, a, a lot, lot of stuff unfolding that year. So, and we come off the back of 2009 where Kimi wasn't actually a title contender. You know, he'd had that win at Spa, but really Ferrari were a bit rubbish that year. So it's not like you'd lost a, a championship contender or a reigning world champion. And actually in 2008, he was pretty comprehensively beaten by Felipe as well, wasn't he? He sort of almost lost interest after becoming world champion in, in 07, I think. Um, so, yeah, maybe at the first race, some people noticed, but as the season unfolded, I think the fact that there was so much going on, you know, Robert Kubica was driving a brilliant year um, for Renault, actually, and he was well in the, in that fight for um, certain weekends. I think of Monaco, his qualifying lap in Monte Carlo was sensational. So... Yeah, I, I don't think people really miss Kimi. And Kimi made a lot of money by not driving for Ferrari that year. Yeah, that's a good point. He, You know, 2009 Raikkonen was, was a bit disengaged by then, wasn't he? So it wasn't like we lost peak Kimi. And maybe some time away did him some good. And uh, he certainly came back for a longer time than I expected when he finally returned. Uh, the other world champion who ruled himself out of an F1 comeback at this stage was none other than Jacques Villeneuve. Uh, I'm not making this up. Uh, this was in the news at the time. Villeneuve had been linked to the Stefan GP project that never got onto the grid. We get a lot of requests to talk about that. Um, we're not going to now. And uh, he then tried to launch his own F1 entry in conjunction with Durango, which had raced for years on the junior ladder. Uh, but Villeneuve told BBC Five Live that his F1 hopes now looked dim. He said he'd worked hard on the team project all year, believing that was the easiest way to get back into F1. And while they had the funding in place to do it, you can only hang on to that for a certain time and then people get bored and move on to something else. He said that once that had failed, uh, it was time to not bother looking at F1 anymore and he was going to turn his full attention to NASCAR, where he'd been making a handful of appearances already. Ed, before we let Kareem come on in on this, is it probably for the best that Villeneuve didn't end up back on the grid with Stefan GP or this Durango project? No, it would have been absolutely brilliant. Imagine the material it would have given us for these uh, for these podcasts. Could have been properly hilarious, but uh, that's more from the perspective of the watching world. I think for Villeneuve himself, 
it was better for that not to happen. And I think realistically, neither got especially close. Durango, for example, were were struggling to get an engine deal. There were there were quite big doubts about how well resourced that team was. I remember one uh, one head of an engine program said, "Well, we might give them a deal, but they basically got to pay for it all completely upfront because they weren't convinced they had the stable uh, stable funding." And yeah, Stefan Grand Prix, yeah, sending freight of picnic tables and chairs to Bahrain to try and show they were serious, etc. Showed the level that uh, that team was operating at. It was strange that Villeneuve was so desperate to get back into Formula One because he really was trying to and he, he'd attach himself to any old project. I think Durango was going to be Villeneuve uh, name at one stage, wasn't it? There was talk of that with uh, one of their applications. But yeah, from his personal perspective, I think he did dodge a bullet on that. Although who knows, maybe he could have made some money out of it. That could have helped the bank balance, but competitiveness-wise, performance-wise, no, it would have been like that 2004 Renault uh, disaster times a million. Well, look, it, the Villeneuve story was was popping up at various points. I mean, so I raced for Durango in GP2 in 2007, and there's no way they would have made it in Formula 1. <laughs> it's just not a chance it would have happened. Was that the year they were making their own parts? No, that was the year after. We allowed that to was the year that? before me. So, <laughs> right. 2006. Yeah, that was with uh, Lucas Dick. So not so many bits fell off when you were driving? No. Well, we did have the rear suspension break in Monza and qualifying at the Ascari Chicane, which was quite exciting. Um, yeah, anyway. But I do remember to just, um, on the Villeneuve stuff, I remember in Barcelona, I, got, I went in the pit garage for FP1. And as I walked in the pits, Christian Klein walked in the pit garage at the same time, wearing a race suit. And I looked at him and went, what are you doing? And he looked at me and went, what are you doing? <laughs> and basically, we both thought we were driving the car in FP1. I hadn't been told that Christian was driving my car for FP1. He'd done a deal with Colin Collis. Uh, and so we went and looked at the car. And the car had my name on one side of it and his name on the other. So we're still confused as to who was driving the car. Amazing. Anyway, I remember I, op- I pulled the drawer, the toolbox open. And there's a whole load of name stickers in there. And it has Jacques Villeneuve. Uh, Pastor Maldonado, Giorgio Mondini, and there was another one. I can't remember off the top of my head. Anyway, there was four names on the sticker sheet. So clearly, somebody was talking to Jacques about coming to drive um, for for Hispania that year, which was quite funny as well. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, even with Stefan GP, I, I was one of the few people who went to Cologne and met with Stefan GP. I met with um, Zoran and Vuk Stefanovic uh, with Colin Collis. Uh, and, you know, at the time, they basically said to me that the so they get an entry, Jacques would be one of their drivers. Um, whether that was true or not, who knows? Um, but, yeah, certainly, you know, that, that was their intention. So what you're telling me is you technically kept Villeneuve out of the HRT seat and you could have been his teammate at Stefan GP. Uh, I don't think I kept him out of the HRT seat, but I could have been his teammate at, at Stefan GP. Um, but, you know, that's a, probably a 0.001% chance of that happening. Yeah, all I can see now is the, uh, so you're saying there's a chance meme. Uh, so let's let's get back to reality, shall we? Uh, this was the first Korean Grand Prix, so let's talk about the track. Organisers were in a race against time to get the circuit ready, blaming a longer and harsher than usual monsoon season for the delays. 
Fortunately, for this episode, we've got the first person to turn laps of the circuit in an F1 car with us. I'll let you guess which one of Ed and Karoon that was. But before we get to that, let's hear from the race's own Johnny Reynolds, as with 100 days to go before the event, he was packed off to Korea by F1 Racing Magazine to find out how the building work was getting on. And this is what he was met with when he got there. Hi all, producer Johnny here. As Glenn says, back in 2010, I hadn't yet ventured into the world of audio production and podcasts and was in fact the news editor for the magazine F1 Racing. And that meant that a few months before I was due to attend the inaugural Korean Grand Prix, I found myself at the circuit having a bit of a preview. Uh, What happened was that the magazine was contacted by the Korean Tourist Board who offered to fly me out to the local area to have a look at the track and the surrounding town. Uh, Now, this was, to put it mildly, a dream scenario for the magazine to get an all-expenses-paid exclusive first look at the track, and I was super excited to get out of there and have a nose around. Obviously, the organisers' hope for me was that I'd write lots of nice things and drum up a bit of interest in the event, all fairly standard stuff with this kind of arrangement, really. Um, So, a week or so later, I flew to Seoul and then took the long bus journey down to Yeongam, the province in the south of the country where the track was situated. And it was only really at this point, as we got closer to the circuit, that I started to feel that something maybe wasn't quite right. Um, Rather than taking us to the track as expected, we were taken to one of the big hotels up on the hill to look at the track from a distance. Uh, This was all very nice, the views were great, but obviously this wasn't going to cut it for the magazine, having gone all that way. So... After a bit of cajoling and a few phone calls back and forth, our hosts somewhat reluctantly agreed to take us to the track. And there was when we saw the reality of the situation. Now, I'm no expert on what it takes to build something as big and complex as a Grand Prix venue. But upon arrival, it immediately became apparent, given the timelines, that there was a real chance that they just weren't going to be ready in time for the race. So at that point, I obviously whipped out my camera and started snapping away. Um, one of these pictures was then used as a double page spread to begin the feature which was headlined 100 days to go until the Korean Grand Prix and this is what the first corner looks like and the photo just shows this huge expanse of dirt where the track should be Um, obviously having seen computer renderings of what the circuit was supposed to look like before I arrived this visual was obviously quite a big shock there were incomplete pit buildings and a half finished grandstand but very little other infrastructure of any note and no real sign of urgent activity going on either which was um, slightly perplexing. In the end as we all know the circuit was just about finished in time but I do remember they were still laying paving in the paddock and doing various other major looking jobs when uh, when the likes of Ed and I arrived for the first Grand Prix that October. To this day I still find it a little sad personally that after all the the money and effort that went into building it, the circuit was only used, what, a handful of times. Because from my perspective, Korea was a great place to visit and it's a country where, on paper at least, F1 should thrive. So who knows? Maybe if the race was in Seoul, it would have been a different story and F1 would still be going back there today. But as it is, the Korea International Circuit seems destined to remain one of those great lost F1 tracks. Ed, we'll come to Karoon's visit when the track was a bit more ready in a moment. Uh, It's quite common for new F1 tracks to cut it fine when getting ready for their first race. But has it ever been as extreme as it was in the case of this track? Yeah, they did 
push it quite a bit. I mean, the the track, the final track surface, I think, wasn't laid until maybe a couple of weeks before the Grand Prix, and there was certainly uh, a lot not done of it. But I must admit, I do remember getting to the track on the Thursday and being quite surprised by the fact that actually, although the whole thing was a bit of a wasteland and all the trimmings were not there. And I remember wandering around trackside on Friday and grandstands were still being built and chair, the, the sort of folding seats were still being bolted in. But actually, the track bit was okay in that there was a track surface, you know, all your curves were there. So in that regard, it was actually not too bad. I, I do remember, for some reason, on Thursday, walking in across the track and walking across a little bit of... um sort of grass sort of grass anyway there wasn't a great deal of grass around there was a lot of mud and it was this sort of really clayey surface so I remember walking across that and sort of sinking sort of three inches which <laughs> I know I put quite a lot of pressure on the ground but I remember thinking if a car sort of goes off sideways there it's going to dig in and go over so there are a few things that are rough around the edges but actually the, the yeah the, the track wasn't too bad but yeah the paddock was all over the place they they sort of paved it but it was really uneven in places so they'd not really done it properly and it had been rushed and I remember thinking they'll probably finish it for next year, but they didn't touch it for the following year. Teams went back and there were still the rotting remains of food in the fridges from the year before. Someone had, someone had written an obscenity on the, uh, like in sort of black spray paint or something on the paddock surface. And that was, I remember seeing that at the end of 2010 and it was still there in 2011. So yeah, it was, it was quite, I mean, it, it was messy and all over the place, but the, the key bits of it worked. So it was okay from that perspective, but it was a mess. A few weeks after Johnny went to the site of the track and could barely make out where the circuit was even supposed to be going, Karun got to drive a Red Bull around the circuit before it was finished. There's footage of this on YouTube if you search for Karun Chanda Career F1 demo. And while you can see that a lot of progress had been made from when F1 Racing visited, it was by no means finished. Um, Karun, tell us about that trip and driving around the track. I will say I've watched the footage back and you've got diggers at the side of the track, bits of barriers not yet in place, uh, cones and bollards where sort of track limits or curbs should be. What was it like? And when you were there, did you think they're going to have this place ready in time for the race, which I think was seven weeks later? Yeah, I got a phone call from, from Bernie Eccleston saying, you know, Red Bull are running this car um, to, to open up the track and do the first laps of the circuit. And, um, you know, I spoke to Christian and, you know, uh, I, I've, I've asked for you to go and do it. So I said, yep, no problem. So I went along. Uh, I was, I knew the Red Bull team because I was a test driver not long before that, actually, uh, on the junior program. So I knew the test team and stuff. So we all got on this plane. They landed in Mokpo. And I remember none of us had really clocked that Mokpo was a five-hour drive from Seoul Airport. So that was the first shock to the system. Um, but after, you know, when you got there, I didn't think they'd be ready. I, I really didn't. I think, um, as you say, you know, when I'm driving around the track, not only were there diggers and, and all sorts going around, but the asphalt wasn't finished. They still had to do another layer of asphalt on top. So that was a sort of sub, sub, uh, sort of one sub layer, if you like. Um, the most terrifying part wasn't the diggers because I could sort of see them away. But I remember coming through, there's a couple of, um, you know, you do, a four, five, six, a sort of fiddly chicane. And there were a couple of quick corners after there for turns seven, eight, nine. And there was a construction worker and, you know, who was kneeling on the apex with his phone, taking pictures as I was driving around, <laughs> um, which somewhat shocked me. And 
Um, you know, they just, they were, I mean, they were obviously excited to see a Formula One car running around there. But the work was going on while we were doing this demo. Um, I do remember a massive amount of attention, though. They, they'd flown in, uh, presumably they got a flight, but I don't know. Anyway, the whole bunch of journalists had come down from Seoul, and it was a massive media circus that day. Um, a lot of attention. And, um, you know, I think, but on the whole, my, my overriding impression was actually as a layout, it was quite interesting, I thought. Um, I hated that bit around 456 because it was just a bit fiddly. But the rest of the track, I thought, was quite a nice track layout. I thought, but good potential for overtaking, you know, long straights into big braking zones, some switchback opportunities, particularly in the first one third of the lap. Um, and actually the high speed stuff, you know, the bank corner where eventually, you know, Mark had his crash. Uh, you know, all of that was actually quite challenging as a layout, I thought, to drive. Um, but certainly, it, it just seemed like there was no way they were going to get it done. From what I recall, we went to do the demo soon after the Belgian Grand Prix, I think it was. Um, and basically, I think they couldn't convince any of the race drivers <laughs> to make the flight all the way out there. And also, by that point, I'd been replaced by Sakon Yamamoto and his sacks of yen who had arrived to, to Hispania. So I was there as a sort of reserve twiddling around. Um, yeah, I think it was after Spa because I remember having a conversation with Bernie at Spa in the paddock. Um, and, and I think, yeah, basically Red Bull couldn't get any of their race drivers to go make the trip all the way out there and back in the middle of the season. So that's your sort of place in F1 at the moment. You're the guy to call if nobody else will do it. Basically, yeah, at that point, yes. I mean, you know me, Ed, I will literally drive anything anywhere. That's how you ended up driving for <laughs> HRT, probably. That is also how that happened, yeah. Was that part of your pitch to Stefan GP, too? Um, no, the, the Stefan GP, the overriding memory of my meeting with Stefan GP was my dad getting the giggles in the middle of the meeting because he, as we were sitting there, and I, he just started giggling and I couldn't work out what was going on. We're having a serious meeting and... And I kicked him and I said to him in, in Tamil, which is the language, we, you know, the Indian language we spoke. I said, what is wrong with you? We're trying to do this deal for a F1 thing here. And he said, look at Colin's trousers. They've ripped at the crotch. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my overriding meeting memory of the Stefan GP meeting. Hmm. When, uh, when I watched the, the video of this, uh, I noticed that they pushed you onto the track where you went, you went through a gap in the pit wall. Was that because the pit exit wasn't ready yet i get, I get the feeling yeah. that was one of the last bits they did yeah exactly uh, but that that's quite common in terms of construction i think they you know they try okay. to get a ribbon of asphalt done and then the pit lane gets finished at the end because you actually don't use need to use the same grade of asphalt necessarily in the pit lane and i think they they had to they wanted to finish building the pit garages i do remember the garages were built though that part i remember because we did our sort of media session upstairs in what would have been like an engineering room. And I remember that bit being finished and quite impressed with, you know, the garages were in, um, like all the plumbing, the airlines, all of that were in. Um, and the upstairs, you know, hospitality and, and engineering offices were finished. I remember that bit being actually quite surprising. That pit exit was idiotic there, the one they had that, that was just on the edge of oh. turn one. That was absolute, that that was the one thing about the track that was just abysmal. I can't believe they allowed it. Well, it's like Valencia, isn't it? You know, the Valencia, not the street circuit, the, the permanent circuit, Ricardo Tomo. Uh, or the Saxon ring. Look at the accident we had in MotoGP this year, the Saxon ring. That, you know, whenever you have a pit exit that feeds at the outside of turn one, it just makes no sense. And actually, Abu Dhabi were the smart ones who, well, also the ones 
I suppose who had the financial means to build the tunnel to, to make sure they didn't have that scenario. The race drivers mostly had nice things to say about the track, aside from a dangerous pit entry as well. Ed mentioned the pit exit, but they weren't happy with the pit entry. But they complimented the variety of corners and said it was interesting to drive. But it wasn't very interesting on Sunday afternoon when it was race time and the track was hit with heavy showers. Vettel and Weber shared an all Red Bull front row with Alonso and Hamilton behind. and Rosberg and Massa were on the third row ahead of title outside of Button, who was seventh. Uh, after attempting a handful of laps behind the safety car, the race was red flagged and after a lengthy stoppage, the cars were back out behind the safety car. Some drivers complained that the track was undrivable, while Lewis Hamilton reckoned it was almost ready for intermediates and the race should get going. Eventually, the rain wasn't that heavy, but Bridgestone director of motorsport Hirohide Hamashima said the water wasn't draining away, so there was too much spray for the race to start safely. Ed, you were there. You were sat through this, waiting for us to get going. It took a long time to finally get racing. Do you think the FIA were too cautious in letting the drivers loose? Well, it's really easy to sit on the outside and and judge that kind of thing and say they should go. Certainly, I think there was no problem with doing that initial start under the safety car and red flagging it and then going back out under the under the safety car. And yeah, the problem was that visibility. Partly, there were parts of the track where the walls were quite close and that was holding the spray in as well uh, and the track surface wasn't too bad um that, that was the general feedback from the drivers so I, I don't have a big problem with it ultimately being overly cautious well you lose more time if you start a bit prematurely and have a big pile up because nobody can see i do probably think they waited a bit longer than they needed to it's 13 laps they spent under the safety car so about 34 minutes so i, I think they probably could have gone earlier in that period but at the same time they did get the race done as as needed the the full race distance in the time permitted so you can say from that perspective it wasn't uh, it wasn't too bad but yeah by and large most of the drivers i think wanted to get going and for all the people laugh at grand prix drivers say oh they're scared of the wet there are points where these cars just become either undrivable because of standing water or the visibility is too abysmal and generally the majority of f1 drivers will want to get going as soon as they can get going and uh there's obviously sometimes agendas weaved in with that of who's in a good position who would rather it didn't get going etc but yeah I, th- I think it was probably a bit overly cautious but i don't think it was outraged i wasn't i'm not sort of one of the pitchfork wielding social media types who think all f1 drivers are cowards because they're far from that and those conditions particularly when you can't see are very very difficult and they didn't know the track so it was a new venue and you sort of have to make a guess of what the spray will be like at racing speed. So, yeah, cautious, but okay, within, within acceptable bounds. When we finally got racing, uh, on just a second lap at full speed, championship leader Weber crashed out chasing Vettel. After bouncing off the wall, his car then slid across the track and took out the unfortunate Rosberg as well, leading to some criticism of Weber that he should have prevented that second impact from happening. Weber called this the one unmitigated disaster of my 2010 season in his book, saying the incident came at precisely the most damaging time. He said that on the first racing lap, he'd gone a bit wide in that corner to see if there was more grip out there. And next time round, he went too wide, got on the curb and it spun him into the wall. At the time, he took full blame for the error and said the car looped round in a frustrating slow motion. Adrian Newey has an interesting theory on this mistake. Uh, In Adrian's book, How to Build a Car, Newey said this was where Mark's intense rivalry with Vettel boiled over. He was so determined to stay with Sebastian and beat him that he overdrove the car, lost control and spun. Karun, 
Weber lost the championship lead that day and would never get it back. Was this the moment that cost him the 2010 title? Unquestionably. Yeah, listen, I mean, the momentum swung towards Sebastian, as Ed mentioned earlier, at that point, literally on that, on that moment when the accident happened, Sebastian became, I think, the, the sort of, not, not number one, because he was sort of already, I think, treated as number one, but I think he just had this mental shift that, you know what, I've got Mark covered. I, I, I've cracked him. He's cracked under pressure, trying to keep up with me. And I think, you know, the next two weekends, Sebastian was just on a different level, wasn't he? Um, you know, even compared to Fernando, frankly. And, and actually, even that day in Korea, very tricky conditions early on. And he just never looked like he was out of control of winning that Grand Prix until the engine went pop. So, um, yeah, I, I think that was unquestionably the biggest moment, you'd have to say, in Mark Webber's Formula One career. Because actually, at that moment, you know, the momentum shifted so much in that team, he never, ever quite recovered. Yes, he won races after that, but he never, ever became a title contender again um, after that that crash in, in, in Korea. Just to make things worse for Red Bull, as Karim mentioned there, Vettel retired from the lead with 10 laps to go when his Renault engine blew up, handing victory and the initiative in the championship to Alonso. Vettel was uh, philosophical in public, at least, saying there were still 50 points up for grabs and that he felt Red Bull had done a perfect job and just been let down by unreliability, which he said there had been too much of in that season. Christian Horner didn't sugarcoat it. He said, we gave a big gift to Fernando today, adding that sometimes motor racing can be cruel and today was one of those days for us. Alonso's win left him 11 points ahead of Weber with two races to go, with Hamilton now third after finishing second in Korea. He was 21 points behind Alonso and Vettel was 25 behind with 50 still to play for. So, if you want, under under the old 10 points for a win system that we were all familiar with in the V10 era, Vettel was 10 behind with two races to go. Um, Ed, we know obviously Vettel ends up winning this championship, but when his engine blew in this race, did you think that was his title hopes over as well? Yeah, pretty much. I think Sebastian showed he felt the same way by allowing the engine to grenade itself. I think he kept his foot in for longer than was entirely necessary, which is why we got quite a gratifying old school explosion, which is very appropriate given we're on a Bring Back V10s podcast. And Yeah, yeah the, the, there was no stop the car, stop the car, was there? It wasn't turn it off before it blows up. Exactly. It's like keep it open and make keep the throttle open and make sure, make sure of it. But yeah, um, that momentum that he just sort of started to build up just came to a juddering hole. And it, and it did take winning the championship out of his hands. All he could do after that is win two races and hope that things fell for him in a pretty big way. And of course, spoiler alert, that did happen. But he lost control of his destiny. And I think that was the the key thing. And I do remember actually in in Brazil thinking that Red Bull would have been wise to switch the drivers because that, that was a Vettel Weber uh, 1-2 the next race. And I thought it would have made sense for them to prioritise Weber, which actually, the way things panned out, uh, wasn't better. I remember actually uh, disputing that with Christian Horner, I think, in, in Brazil. And then after the race in Abu Dhabi, when they won the title, saying, oh, yeah, OK, yeah, that that kind of worked out. But it shows how sort of on the edge Red Bull were, that they did have the best car over the season. But they did come very close to putting themselves in a position where they didn't win it. And this did sound, this did feel like the end for Vettel's title push, because although it's mathematically possible, it's not in your hands. And that's always the thing that, that you look for. Any driver 
if you say to them, right, if you win the next two races, you're world champion. Whatever happens, you think, yeah, we'll take that. But as soon as it's, well, you'll be world champion if this other thing happens and Ferrari forget that there's a that you're in the race and don't understand tyres and cover a struggling Weber rather than you, you'll do it. So, yeah, it, 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 it fundamentally changed Vettel's role in this championship to outsider. It certainly helped make Abu Dhabi 2010 a, a memorable race. It wouldn't quite have been the same if Vettel had won this one. Um, but the win for Alonso made him firmly the in-form man in the championship, at least results-wise. He'd won three of the last four races. So whereas after Spa, he'd been fifth in the standings, 41 points behind championship leader Hamilton, now he was out front by 11. Alonso played down the title picture, as you'd expect, saying that with the new point system offering 25 points for a win, nobody could afford non-finishes because someone else in title contention would be picking up those victories. Ferrari boss uh, Stefano Domenicali echoed that, but with some optimism bundled in too. He said it was important that Ferrari didn't overreact to a great part of the season and warned that Red Bull's record of 15 poles from 17 races showed how fast their car was. But he added that Ferrari was still fighting and after that previous race in Japan, he'd said Alonso needed to be on the podium at every remaining race and win one of them. So now Alonso had got the win. Domenicali said now comes the hard part because Ferrari needed to do everything perfectly for two more races. And as Ed outlined, they didn't quite manage it. But Karun, given the relative performance of Ferrari and Red Bull, did three wins out of four races here flatter Alonso at this stage of the season? I think it did a little bit. You know, you just have to look at where where Fernando's performances were relative to Felipe Massa. You know, at uh, okay, Massa got podium in in Monza, but you know, Singapore he was eighth, and you know he he, he wasn't really anywhere close to challenging Fernando. Um, I, I think that that period of 2000, I mean, we keep saying it now, even with Fernando's performances, but that period of 2010, 11, 12, in so many ways, I think was peak Fernando Alonso. I think it was even better than we saw in 2005, 6, 7, um, when he was world champion and a, and a point away from being champion. Um, yeah, I mean, I still maintain 2012, more than 2010, I guess, was arguably the, the single greatest season we've seen a driver put together since Jim Clark in 65. Um, you know, just the level of consistent brilliance. Um, so, yeah, I think Fernando kept them in the fight, didn't he? You know, there's very few drivers. I think he would have kept that that Ferrari team in the fight until that late in the season. Um, would the... Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, and it justified them swapping Kimi, didn't they? I think that's the key point, is it justified the expensive payoff that they did to Kimi to bring Fernando into the team. Yeah, I'm not sure Raikkonen would have kept himself in contention uh, through 2010. Let's briefly come back to what Ed mentioned at the start of the show, and that's that's how dark it was by the time this race finished. Uh, even Vettel, who didn't do the final 10 laps of the race, said it was becoming difficult to see before he retired. Maybe he knew his engine was about to blow up. Um, Vettel didn't have a clear visor though, whereas Rubens Barrichello did, and he felt even he felt the race was unsafe by the end, and that it should have finished five or six laps earlier. Ed, you you've talked about the darkness already, so we'll just quickly revisit this. Was it too dark by the end for them still to be racing? <laughs> that was certainly my feeling when I realised how dark it was. Um, 
I remember speaking to Tony Elietti after the race as well, and he said he was almost being dazzled by the LED lights on the uh, the dashboard because it was just so gloomy that this was just all lifted and it just made it really difficult. So, yeah, it, it did run a bit late, really. And uh, it, it's difficult, though, because I, I, just to tie it to my own uh, very modest amateur racing career, I remember doing a race in uh, the Genetta Championship at Thruxton. It was quite, a, quite late in the season, and I think the race finished at about half six. And I remember getting out of the car at the end of it and thinking, oh, it's pretty much dark, which I hadn't really noticed while in the car. So I guess you also kind of adjust and that kind of thing. Uh, certainly, I know Vettel was complaining over the radio about it getting too gloomy, but of course he was leading and had passed 75% distance. So it was in his interest to to stop the race. I, I think they did go a bit far with it, really, because they were desperate to get the uh, the full race distance in. But ultimately, although it was difficult and unusual, the drivers dealt with it okay i wouldn't want them to make a habit of putting drivers through this but being in the car sort of all the way through it it probably didn't seem quite so bad in the cockpit until they probably got out at the end and thought wow it really really is very dark so yeah don't do it again but but you know it, it, it wasn't impossible to see they, they knew where they were going and uh again i guess it just reflects how good f1 drivers are as well both Red Bulls retiring helped keep Hamilton in the hunt with his second place in career, but he accepted that McLaren needed to respond to Red Bull and Ferrari. He said McLaren's qualifying pace wasn't good enough. He felt it was difficult to drive in high speed corners and it was trying. Uh, McLaren were trying to catch up, but the other teams were doing a great job. But with McLaren clearly an outsider by this point, Lewis said the pressure was on the other two teams. As for reigning champion Button, he finished 12th after a miserable race, leaving him 42 points behind with 50 still to play for. So really, he was out of, out of contention. And he accepted that unless everyone else had car failures, his championship hopes were over. Button briefly referenced this weekend in his book, saying it pretty much ended his title hopes. And he said the only good thing that happened to him was someone in a restaurant paid his bill for him because they thought he was Sebastian Vettel. Um... Ed, I don't expect you to have an opinion on that, but was the story of McLaren's season in 2010 just a case of it not quite being quick enough when it counted? Reminds me of the time someone mistook you for Andy Prio, Glenn. Uh, elevated you yeah, to the Old multiple Sport worlds. I, I, I agreed to an invitation to do some event that they were trying to offer me a drive, and I said, sure, give me a call. <laughs> and um, I wonder if Andy ever got the call. <laughs> Could have changed his career, but yeah. Uh, well, uh, McLaren... I think it's not necessarily even not quick enough in the final stages of the year. I think globally that car wasn't quite good enough. It was only the third quickest really over the season. And if we look at the technical reasons for that, it was quite a long car. It had that sort of long narrow gearbox, engine slightly further forward. In itself, that was quite a good approach. It allowed you to work the diffuser really, really hard. But it was also the start of the characteristic that McLaren had for a few years in this era where they had a, an aero map that was really sensitive. You needed to really hold it at a, within a tight range of ride heights and minimise the, the pitch and that kind of thing. So you had to run the car very, very stiff, which isn't a great characteristic. Then when it does start to sort of pitch around, you get the risk of stalls and that kind of thing. So the diffuser was prone to stalling. But yeah, it, it was good car, particularly in races, not so strong in qualifying, but it really needed a smooth circuit. It was at its best that season on a smooth circuit, particularly early in the season with long straights, because of course they pioneered the F-Ducks, which then others later caught up with. But actually, if you look at it, of the five wins that season, you know, two Jensen Button ones that were based on good tyre calls, 
partly. Um, Hamilton won in Turkey after the Red Bull obliteration and then just some Hamilton virtuosity at Spa and Montreal. So I think that was a strong driver lineup, fractionally flattering the car. So although they did fade when you look at the results, I think that was more just the manifestation of the natural level and they, they couldn't pick off these results as they'd done earlier in the year, which was partly driven by the drivers and partly driven by the car uh, working uh, working well on a, on a given circuit. So yeah, once Red Bull were really making the most of their car and really were on top of it and Ferrari had done the same, McLaren was firmly third best so I think the reasons for them being defeated that year were there all year I don't think it was kind of dropping off a cliff at the end of the season even though the results kind of did Button got asked if he'd help Hamilton in the title race and he said once he was out of mathematical contention he'd do whatever was needed but there was more focus on the team orders debate at Red Bull team boss Horner said it would be wrong to ask Vettel to help Weber when he still had a shot on the title for himself and a few days after the race on the Red Bull website Horner reiterated that they would be supporting both drivers equally for the final two races but Weber said in his book that What was being said in public didn't chime with what was being done in private. He said Red Bull had called off the battle between its drivers in Suzuka when they were running 1-2 with Vettel ahead, and he was told it was because Adrian Newey didn't want to risk another collision between them after what happened in Turkey earlier that year. Weber wrote that Horner later admitted that he approached Red Bull owner Dietrich Mateschitz in late 2010 to suggest that the team put all of its effort behind Weber. He said that Mateschitz agreed until Helmut Marko got in his ear and advised him otherwise. This gets a passing mention in Newey's book too, where he says he and Horner were caught in the middle and they had little choice but to respect Seb's position. Karun, if we ignore the fact that Vettel does end up nicking this championship... Just looking at where things were with two races to go, as Ed mentioned earlier, kind of having an argument with, with or a debate with Horner about it. If he's 25 points behind with 50 still on the table, could he really be asked to play second fiddle to Weber? No, the, unfortunately for, for Mark, I think that's, you know, that's just not an option. And, and the reality is, as, as Multi-21 will show us, you know, a few years later, um, it's highly unlikely. He wouldn't have listened anyway. Yeah, he wouldn't have listened anyway. So it's a bit of an irrelevant point. <laughs> um, so no, I, I think what, what Jensen said before, you know, it's about if you're mathematically still in the fight, you're going to want to be in the fight. So I, I don't think it's realistic to have asked the team orders then. Yeah, and obviously history uh, proved Red Bull did the right thing. Uh, so you can't you can't really complain. But yeah... It, two races still up for grabs and you're one race win behind I think that's quite difficult to to ask him I think if he'd been in the button situation where you as Jensen said you basically needed four other guys to pretty much retire from both races then I think you can have more of a conversation but but Vettel was in the hunt as he proved so we'll leave it there for Korea 2010 and our regular detour into the V8 era so thanks to Ed and Karun for sharing your your memories from this one next time we're heading back into the comfort of the mid 1990s to what was in fact the last F1 race to feature a V12 engine and that's the 1995 Australian Grand Prix The Athletic